Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pearce. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the team at policyforum.net and we're based at ANU Crawford School of Public Policy. Crawford School is the leading graduate policy school in the Asia-Pacific region. It's home to some of the preeminent scholars and practitioners in the field of public policy. So if you're looking to take on a policy-facing position in the future, Crawford can provide you with the leadership skills you need to succeed. Check out our range of short courses and degrees at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study and we look forward to welcoming you to the school. Now, on last week's episode of Policy Forum Pod, we discussed the long list of stimulus and policy items of the federal budget 2020 and whether it's actually doing enough to support those Australians who are most in need. In this episode, though, we want to examine the government's efforts on energy policy and climate change mitigation, particularly the so-called gas-led recovery and the government's new plan for the development of low-carbon technologies. This year's budget has remained silent on the part of when Australia will reach net zero carbon emissions. While some scientists were excited to see the 7.6 million poured into an upgrade of the Australian Community Climate and Earth System Simulator, others have criticised the government for largely shunning investment in renewable energy with only $5 million allocated to electric vehicles. But the government has also announced the five priority low emissions technologies as part of its technology investment roadmap, including carbon capture and storage and funding gas exploration in the country over the next four years to the tune of $52.9 billion. So today we're asking, is a gas-led recovery really the best option for reducing emissions in Australia? Or are there alternatives that would lead to better outcomes for the economy and for the climate. And we have invited a stellar lineup of experts who are joining us live and in the studio and remotely from overseas. 
to tackle this question. First of all, I'd like to welcome into the studio Professor Mark Howden. Mark is the Director of the Climate Change Institute here at the ANU and he's also a Vice Chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Hello, Mark. Afternoon. And also with me here in the studio is Dr. Beck Colvin. Beck is a lecturer at Crawford School of Public Policy and uh, prior to joining Crawford School, she was a Knowledge Exchange Specialist for the ANU Climate Change Institute. Hi, Beck. Hello. And joining us remotely at a very early hour of the morning from uh, Oslo is Ketan Joshi. Ketan is a science writer and he's most recently uh, published a book called Windfall, which discusses why the uh, speed with which emissions could have been reduced, like putting a price on carbon, was hampered by a flurry of policy disasters. Hello, Ketan. Good morning slash good afternoon to everybody. Well, welcome to all three of you. It's great to have you with us today. Now, last week's budget has received some pretty mixed reviews from experts. The government was keen to spend big on gas and is also funding renewable energy support agencies such as the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, that's ARENA, and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the CEFC. I'd just like to take a bit of the temperature of the panel, really, and ask you all what you made of the government's choice to invest in gas. Perhaps, Mark, if I start with you. I guess my overall response is uh, disappointed. Uh, I think there's a a great opportunity to uh, launch Australia onto a new trajectory, one which has win-win-wins across all of the sustainability criteria. That's economic, environmental and social. And uh, and that didn't happen. Uh, The opportunity for a green stimulus package, I think, was widely sought after from the Australian public uh, and through a whole range of different commentators and analysts. And and essentially that was not there. And, And so instead, it was a, a budget that looked backwards in a sense uh, rather than looking forwards. What about you, Beck? Were you surprised by the government's decision about gas? Not terribly surprised, no. And I have to say, I usually listen to the scientific experts to inform my opinion. So I'll just try to repeat verbatim what Mark said. <laughs> but it was a policy window that could have been the perfect space to set us on a different pathway forward. And that window was closed. And as Mark said, we looked backwards instead. Katan, your book documents, that, as I said, this sort of flurry of policy disasters around uh, tackling climate change. Is the decision to invest in gas another one in uh, in that chapter? Yeah, I, th- I think so. So two things immediately came to mind when uh, this all this stuff started coming out and it's there's been a sort of drumbeat of it since the sort of early days of the pandemic. The first thing I was immediately reminded of was this policy approach from, I guess, like the early 2000s uh, from under the Howard government, and they called it the Low Emissions Technology Group or something like that. Um, And what it involved was a series of meetings with industry who were basically all like, well, we need to sort of talk about innovation and new technologies and carbon capture and things like that. And, of course, gas played a very key role in those discussions back in the early 2000s. And there was plenty of controversy about those uh, attitudes and approaches as well. And I think what we've seen over the past year is really a big resurgence of this approach, which is is focusing very much on uh, half measures and doing things uh, that sort of have some impact on emissions but not enough impact on emissions 
Uh, and the other thing I was reminded of uh, was this really fascinating study by William Lamb at Al on discourses of delay. It tries to create a sort of taxonomy uh, behind the ways that people delay uh, energy transitions and climate action. And this very much falls into the uh, components that talk about not going too fast, you know, not causing too much disruption and trying to keep the status quo going for a little bit longer. Uh, so, of course, uh, as with the other two answers, I was not particularly surprised. Uh, but it is also really very much linked into the historical context of Australian climate policy. Now, of course, Mark, the main game here is to try and tackle emissions. Does the gas-led recovery that Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg spelled out do anything to, to help tackle emissions? Well, it's sort of interesting. So going back to the 1990s and perhaps early 2000s, we did talk about gas as a transition fuel between essentially you know, coal-fired electricity here in Australia and moving to renewables. And, uh, and of course, in that time, things have changed dramatically. Uh, so we're seeing uh, coal being divested from across the globe. Uh, we've seen renewables become incredibly cheap. And, and so, uh, so the prices have dropped far faster than people would have thought. Uh, and, and so that it's now um, solar and wind are the cheapest ways of getting electricity into our system, you know, new electricity into our system. And uh, and so as a result, that concept of gas as a core transition fuel, I think, has actually been left behind. And and so essentially, it's a stranded idea. Just like you know, we're we're confronted with stranded assets. And uh, and the argument is, of course, that uh, you know we do need uh, sources of electricity, uh, dispatchable electricity, uh, to go into our grid when when uh, some of the supplies uh, are low from renewables. And that's true. But there's other ways of actually providing that which don't set up uh, infrastructure that's going to be here for the next you know 30 or 40 years uh, generating greenhouse gases uh, that we simply can't afford to generate if we're to comply with the Paris Agreement temperature goals and so so I think uh, you know we do need to have a very uh, frank conversation with the Australian public which is just very straightforward um, gas, is a fossil fuel. Uh, gas produces greenhouse gas emissions, and greenhouse gas emissions warm the earth. And a warmer earth is not a good place for Australia to be. So, I want to dig in now to the renewables investment in the budget, or perhaps the lack of renewable investment in the budget. And same with you, Mark. There was 1.9 billion of funding to go to Arena and the CEFC. Will that be enough to develop low carbon technologies on, on time to avoid? the most catastrophic impacts of climate change? Look, I, I think the, the contribution to ARENA to extend its funding is welcome. <clears throat> um, 1.4 billion over 10 years or maybe 12 years because there's some uncertainty about the, uh, the actual duration um, is, is, is good. But when you divide that up, um, assuming it's 10 years, that's uh, you know, $140 million a year and, and that's uh, intended to put Australia on the front foot uh, in terms of a, a whole, you know, new energy system, a whole new uh, industrial system, and and I think that's just completely inadequate. Uh, I think it's 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 welcome, um, but not enough. And when you compare it, say, with uh, other developed countries, uh, you know, France is putting roughly speaking a third of its 164 billion euros into green recovery. A lot of that into energy. Um, uh, the US Biden is talking about, uh, I think it's 2.4 trillion 
dollars worth into uh, climate action, green recovery type systems. And so, so when you compare what we're putting in, it's actually very, very small. And, uh, and if we're to be competitive and to the make the most of our opportunities, I think we need to step that up very significantly. Beck, as I said, renewables were largely absent, but there was 5 million allocated towards electric vehicles. Why was, in, in your opinion, was investment in renewable energies largely left out of the budget? What should the government have been spending its money on? I can give you my opinion. It might not be the universal view, but renewables have become politically fraught. So for a government that has pushed against more renewables, it makes sense that if they're to continue funding ARENA and the CEFC, that they broaden the remit, which they did. So now those two agencies aren't just looking at renewables, but low carbon and zero carbon, if I'm correct. Mark's nodding, so I'll take that as yes, I'm correct by the scientific authority in the room. So it's interesting. And even the rebranding of the Emissions Reduction Fund as the Climate Solutions Fund, um, at the time, I remember my interpretation of that being this is another sign that the era of institutional climate denial is over because they're putting climate into the name of this policy, which was kind of the second best policy after <laughs> what it was following, or maybe not even second best. But now it makes sense that the emissions reduction fund, if climate solutions is seen to be not necessarily emissions reduction, but anything that's claimed to be under that umbrella, then it's kind of loosening the scope of what are the politically accepted actions and that creates openings for things that are politically viable but not necessarily viable in the scope of what needs to happen for the climate. So in that way, perhaps gas is a political transition as opposed to an actual um, energy transition makes sense. Yeah, and just following on from what Beck said is that um, the, the sort of subtle renaming of, of things like the, the objective of Arena moving from you know clean energy technologies to low emission technologies is is quite important. Uh, you know, low is is not clean; it's not zero; it's just lower than something else. And and so, if it's could be argued that it's it's lower emissions than it coal, um, and therefore it meets that criteria. So so what it actually sets is a very low bar to to actually be included and and I think uh, you know Australians uh, want more than that uh, you know when when surveys are done of, of what their expectation is of moving into renewables they not only say in the surveys that they want more renewables but they do it by putting on solar panels on their roofs Mark let me stay with you and throw that question to you as well what should the government I mean government spent an inordinate amount of money there's a vast sums been shoveled out the door from the into the economy in the uh, federal budget what should the government have been spending its money on in order to uh, tackle uh, emissions and uh, prepare us and uh, for doing something about climate change? Look, I, I'm not in the business of telling governments what they should do, but but clearly there's a range of, uh, in a sense, um, pathways which have been identified to take us to a, a you know, much lower emissions economy, uh, which which also have a whole series of co-benefits. So um, the sort of below zero um, group have actually put out a, a, a program, the Deep Decarbonisation Project, uh, you know, laid out a pathway there. And 
uh, and importantly, um, one of the core things there is you need to put a price on greenhouse gas emissions. And I say greenhouse gas emissions because it's not just about carbon. There's other greenhouse gases which are not carbon-based. Uh, and um, and having that as a comprehensive um, program, and pretty much every economist in the world says that's the most efficient and most effective way of lowering emissions. Um, secondly, is that we need to put in place um, R&D um, that, that actually supports uh, the, the moves. And that's not just about technologies, because technologies aren't enough by themselves. Uh, so the R&D needs to include technologies, but it needs to include things like governance um, and uh, social psychology and, and how to move people from uh, jobs in one area and one uh, field of work into a different area. And uh, and so it needs to be comprehensive in terms of how it approaches this. So dealing with all of the elements there. And um, another component is that almost all the political attention is paid to Australia's electricity system, yet that's only 30% of our greenhouse gas emissions profile. And that leaves essentially two-thirds um, uh, un- unattended, and, and yet there's arguably a lot of opportunities uh, sitting in there for low-cost, very effective reductions in emissions that have a whole range of co-benefits. And so, so again, uh, being much more comprehensive and integrated is, is being called for. And, and, and the last component, I think, is uh, it's been laid out very clearly in a range of different documents how being proactive on this is actually advantageous for Australia in economic terms, in social terms, in environmental terms. Uh, we can actually profit out of being the leaders in terms of taking effective climate action um, rather than the standard uh, sort of story or narrative which is oh, we have to wait for others, um, let's delay before we take action or um, we don't want to encourage free riding by other countries uh, when in fact the common view overseas is that Australia is actually doing the free riding. Now that's a narrative that you're obviously very familiar with, Ketan. What additional steps could the government take to complement its technology investment roadmap and deliver better outcomes than might currently it might currently expect from its existing suite of policies. When people like me, you know, energy nerds are reading this sort of stuff, uh, we we do two things. First of all, we pay close attention to what is being said. uh, And we also pay close attention to what's not being said. Uh, And so a policy like the technology investment roadmap is telling in what it tends not to discuss. Uh, And in general, when it comes to climate action around the world, uh, there's a tension between innovation, so researching areas that are hard to decarbonize, uh, such as uh, steel manufacturing, and areas that are low-hanging fruit, things that we can do today, uh, such as changing the energy system from fossil fuels to renewables or converting transport to electric forms. So, uh, replacing buses and cars with uh, electric motors, for instance. Now, it's the deployment side that is really missing from a lot of these government policies at the moment. Uh, And you can actually sort of see the political elements of this starting to come out because the Australian Labor Party just released what they're calling the uh, rewiring the nation um, policy, which looks to create a guiding hand for the build out of transmission infrastructure Uh, Now, this is probably something people who are familiar with the renewable energy debate may not really be familiar with how transmission fits in all of this. Uh, 
when you look at the different visions of the future created by Australia's grid operator, they're called the Australian Energy Market Operator or AEMO, transmission actually plays a really pivotal role in whether you get a lot of renewables on the grid or not many renewables on the grid. Uh, It's actually the thing that decides the emissions outcomes for the future. Uh, So what we're starting to see is differentiation on this sort of policy But it's not the obvious, like, are we giving huge amounts of money to renewables or are we giving no money to renewables? That's sort of a very 2010s idea. The real distinction that we're starting to see now is, is the government playing a guiding role in the shape of Australia's energy systems or is it kind of stepping back? Uh, And you can also sort of see this reflected in the language of uh, the Australian government where they talk about not really wanting to do what they call a command and control style approach to climate action. Uh, so these are the, these are the areas that the distinctions are starting to form. Uh, and of course, my my personal view, and, and I, I hold it very strongly, is that there's a lot of very low hanging fruit that we can use to both accelerate the transition, but also very importantly to make sure that the transition is something that leads to immediate beneficial changes to the lifestyles of, of people in Australia. And I was just reading the um, the International Energy Agency's World Energy Outlook, um, which has been released from embargo uh, only a few minutes ago, uh, which means I can talk about it here. Um, the, the report highlights one really important thing, and it's exactly what we're seeing in Australia, but it's applied to the entire world, which is the way that the grid changes in response to renewables has a really, really big role in the emissions outcome for the future. Uh, So how do you integrate renewables? How how much new transmission lines do you build? Do you build energy storage? Do you use demand response? All of these things, if they're mismanaged, can really slow it down. And if they're managed well, can really speed it up. And of course, the thing is with emissions, it, it matters whether or not you put molecules of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere uh for the most part there's no taking it back the decision we make to to emit greenhouse gases today that's a semi-permanent or near permanent decision uh and when we have the option to not do it uh i think that we really need to be taking those options uh and what that international energy agency report along with pretty much every single report on this issue for the past decade or so says is that you need a guiding hand uh, and you need strong intervention to accelerate it to where it needs to be even if you kind of feel that if you left it it would probably just happen by itself now we're talking about the speed of the transition all right well this seems like a good point to take a quick break but join us again after this where we'll dig into a little more about the some of the community attitudes around tackling climate change as well as some of the politics ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I'm still here with Beck, Ketan and Mark. Ketan, your new book, Windfall Charts, as I said, what you describe as a flurry of policy disasters on climate in Australia. Why has it been so difficult to implement the policies that science tells us we need in order to prevent catastrophic climate change? In Windfall, I took a historical look at the past basically the shape of inaction over the past 10 years. So what were the missed opportunities? What what were times when we got relatively close to, to good climate action? And what was what were the factors that stymied it? And I really sort of pin it down uh, to two very general phenomena that keep cropping up in climate policy and energy policy, uh, and I guess transitions in general. The first phenomena, I talk about the ways that technologies are developed. And uh, I bring up the example of what was known as wind turbine syndrome, which was a, a health fear relating to the operation of wind turbines, which was very much viewed as a scientific or even a sociological phenomenon uh, back in sort of around 2015 when it when it happened. But in retrospect, I, I sort of try to reimagine it in the book as an energy justice issue in which people are responding to new technologies and beginning to question why the benefits are not being shared more evenly across those people living near those technologies. And the stumbling blocks with that, the ways that it went wrong actually resulted in a manifest change in Australia's policy. Uh, And so the backlash to the growth of wind energy specifically in Australia, that was something that fed into changes to Australia's renewable energy policies and created additional political pressure uh, for a policy that was already under threat. The second phenomenon that I talk about in a fair bit of detail is the use of fear and, uh, I guess, scare tactics when it comes to talking about the prospect of change. Uh, There are many different climate policies in many different places around the world that have been framed as immediately harmful or or, um, unfair to people. And, and, you know, to be fair, in many cases, uh, there are many climate policies that we've seen that are unfair. Um, What happens is those policies are presented as things that are going to create harm in some way. So, for instance, uh, a climate policy may be presented as increasing the chance of blackouts happening. So, you'll experience... uh, very severe disadvantages as your as your power is lost thanks to intermittent renewable energy, just to give an example of an argument that has been made. Another example is uh, Australia's economic prosperity will, will suffer or your own economic prosperity will suffer as your electricity bills go up. Uh, all of these things sort of have added up. Um, mm. And perhaps the most memorable, of course, is the I guess the policy issues around Australia's carbon pricing in 2014, which I think 
you know, I think many people will will recognize what I'm describing uh, in the public discourse. If you think back to what you heard and what you read uh, when that policy was created, when it was implemented, and in the very final days of its existence, uh, you'll you'll feel probably feel very strongly that that well, that's a great example of, um, I guess fear and loathing around new climate policies. Beck and Kitan is, you know, is, is spot on with his observations about how and why things have gone wrong. But there's a, there's a contradiction here because we see poll after poll in Australia showing strong support from the public for renewables and for tackling climate change more broadly. But despite that, we see the government throwing its weight and considerable spending behind gas why is there that apparent difference between what the public want and what the government wants a big part of the answer lies in the politics of interest groups so the policy debates that Katan was just talking about and I must admit I haven't read the book yet but it's at the top of my list Katan um the minerals council was so active in steering the debate in the public sphere. We have quotes from who was at the time, don't know if the person is still the CEO of the Minerals Council, saying that the era of influencing policy is now to influence the government through public opinion. And the quote is something like, the government may not care what we think, but they care what the public thinks. So let's influence the public. And this was campaigning against two climate policies and their um, resource super profits tax in between them. And that's been quite significant. That sort of campaigning, that influence happens at the national level in the public sphere. And then there's also more regionally targeted campaigns as well. We see it in regional New South Wales um, campaigns by the Minerals Council that are looking at how they can influence policy outcomes by influencing voters' attitudes. That makes things really complicated because there are fundamental imbalances with power, with resources, with access to influence. So that's tricky to get around. And when we look at public opinion, it is quite astounding. The difference between Australia's policies and status at the international level on what we're doing for climate change versus what the population will say that they want for climate policy is a big gap there. So there's something going on in our structures of decision-making that is leading to a gap between what people want, what they say they want, and what's happening in the policy space. I think the role of interest groups is an important part of the answer there. I do want to dig a little more into that role of interest groups in a second. But first of all, just staying with this whole thing about public opinion, essentially being on the side of tackling climate change. Do you think, given that strong public opinion, that the public will be concerned about the sort of overall direction of travel that has been sort of spelled out through the budget? When the fires happened at the start of the year, they were devastating in so many manifold ways. It seems like to many of us that are familiar with climate change that listen to people like Mark about what the scientific consensus is telling us. It seems like, how can we go through this horror and continue as we were? 
But of course, we've now had another horror, which is the pandemic. And there's challenging dynamics too with what is considered salient for everyday people, for voters, the people who tick the boxes on public opinion surveys. We know that one of the most significant influences on what becomes reflected in public opinion polling is the salience of an issue. How often do we hear about climate change in the media? So we don't do a terribly good job at embracing complexity and dealing with multiple crises at once. The disruption that COVID, the pandemic, has created, like Katan, like Mark have been saying, there could have been responses to that that have also contributed to dealing with climate change and we haven't seen them. But how do we trade off in the public sphere between this existential crisis of climate change and this very immediate awful crisis of COVID? And public attention is an important resource. It's difficult to see how climate change will remain at the top of the agenda in the face of something that's so imminent and threatening. But nonetheless, people still care. Um, and so that comes down to a question of salience and priority for dealing with the multiple crises that we're facing. Beck's raised a whole series of points there, but but Beck, you often talk about how uh, climate change is viewed as a, a distant thing, like uh, and and also a uh, something that happens to other people and uh, and something that's conflictual, and so people avoid that. And and I think perhaps if you if you expand on that, because I think that's part of the reason why there's a gap between uh, what people say they want and and the demands they place in the political sphere. Uh, so so often we've heard about. Um, this is the climate change election, um, but it hasn't actually worked out that way. But but also noting that this is a peculiarly Australian thing in some respects, not not only Australian because it happens in US and other countries, but but there's flavours of this that are peculiarly Australian, um, and and it is peculiarly federal in some respects. So so if you look at um, the states, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, etc., um, often they've got a very different stance on climate change, on greenhouse gas emissions, on renewables to the, to the the Commonwealth. And and so you know one example that Catan uh, mentioned before was. Uh, Transmission, so uh, policy innovation in New South Wales, which is setting up re renewable energy uh, precincts like regions, uh, which are well connected transmission wise, and so that becomes a preferential place to in put in renewables, and so so you actually get concentration of renewables rather than getting them spread out and having to put you know more effective transmission everywhere, and so um, so we get a very very different flavour in different states, and 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 I think in part that's because the distance between people and state government is less than the distance between people and Commonwealth government, so that gap is possibly less. So I think the distance thing is really important. So if we can put something off, we will put it off, especially if we perceive that it will be painful to deal with. But one of the other things that's wrapped up with what you were just talking about is how climate change is seen to be a taboo topic. It's not a polite thing to bring up at the dinner table when you catch up with family, whatever. And so we have this kind of culture of avoiding talking about climate change. But we've got some really good research. This actually comes from the US context, but that conversations about climate change among people who trust each other, who know each other, friends, families, colleagues, neighbours, are really important for social transformation. So we also 
have this thing, this perception gap where if you ask us everyday people, how much do we think there is climate denial out there in the population? We rate that much higher than it actually is. And part of that seems to be that minority voices are amplified in the media. But that perception gap also contributes to the unwillingness to talk about climate change. And of course, not talking about climate change means we're not exchanging good ideas and we're not learning from each other and we're not remembering that this is a salient, important issue that we need to do something about. And this is especially important because we're also seeing lots of evidence that good deliberative conversations that span across the political divide do help people to find common ground on climate change. So one of the challenges of a politically divisive issue like climate change is that we can tend to fall in the trap of this both-sidesism type view. But it's very clear that on climate change, the weight of scientific evidence falls on one side of that debate. So part of it is getting past those sound bites that have been fed into the popular discourse from these political toxic debates that we've had and getting around the fact that we see climate change as a topic not to talk about, finding ways to talk about it that can break through some of those challenges is really important. But it has been an area of huge political conflict for more than a, more than a decade. So what are some concrete ways that we can actually go about sort of breaking down those things and starting to have those kind of conversations? Well, some of it just comes down to trying to have conversations in a way that aligns with being a decent person. So starting with asking questions, genuinely seeking to understand the person that you're talking to, not racing to persuade the person you're speaking to to agree with a particular outcome, but working through and taking a cooperative approach to conversation that seeks understanding, seeks truth, that shows a willingness to question your own assumptions and perceptions about the world. We're not all that good at having conversations around difference that are constructive and productive. We're very good at having conversations around points of difference that are destructive and make us remember why we don't want to talk about difficult issues. So being able to talk about difficult issues in a way that builds shared understanding and finds that common ground is a really important thing. And I think that's it's really important. And and one of the things that always intrigues me is is why uh, climate change is particularly uh, sort of out of bounds for conservative uh, people with conservative mindsets, uh, because a, a, if you step back, a, a rational assessment would be uh, that. Uh, avoiding climate change is absolutely aligned with conservative values. Uh, climate change actually threatens a lot of the values that conservative people find important. And, and so, so in a rational world, we'd actually find that the conservatives would be leading the charge in, in dealing with climate change. And, and yet through various, um, sort of manipulations over, over a period of decades, uh, we find that sort of identity is now, if you're conservative, you're anti-climate change action. 
and if you're progressive, you're pro-climate change action, which is a quite bizarre sort of uh, you know way of viewing this. Uh, dealing with climate change is arguably in the interests of absolutely everyone, and absolutely every one of us contributes to climate change through our greenhouse gas emissions, and all of us are affected by climate change right now, um, and increasingly so in the future. So, so this this argue about us and them just doesn't stand up to any rational analysis. Katana, I'd be interested in your views on all of this. How, how do we get around that sort of politicisation that has happened around climate change? Yeah, it's. I, I definitely I agree with the use of the word bizarre because uh, it's really just a very straightforward physical threat to to our safety and our, and our well-being. And you'd think that the um, mission to protect us and to protect the natural environment would be would really just have everybody on board from the outset. But of course, uh, the history you know, when it comes to vested interests and um, political corruption and things like that around the world, um, it's all played into it and created the situation. But something that I find really interesting is, of course, the rise of the pandemic uh, has given us this lens into another crisis uh, and, of course, the interesting question is then do we see the same bizarre politicization of what really should just be a very straightforward, massive global effort to protect human health? Uh, and the answer, of course, is that it depends on where you are. In America, the wearing of masks, for instance, has become almost a political symbol, uh, something that you use to signify your allegiances or identity. Uh and, of course, that mirrors so much of what we've seen in climate change. And I think these two things are really linked. I think that uh, the politicization of climate created almost this infrastructure in media and politics to turn scientific issues into political identity issues. Uh, and, of course, that's a really big problem. And it, and it suggests that um, very much so in America, but in, in to some extent in Australia, I think, as well, uh, this has become baked into culture is to uh, see major major scientific issues and major crises politicized. There is, I think, a very good and healthy approach to trying to cure some of this that I've seen also coming up in America uh, and unfortunately not in too many other places in the world. And that's uh, the involvement of youth and community focus movements. So what happens in, in a lot of these movements is they become... Uh, far more than a group of people urging political change. So there's a group in America called the Sunrise Movement, um, and I've been following them really closely because I find the tone and the tenor of what they're saying really significant. They tend to have discussions about climate that are there to provide a space for dealing with both the fact that a lot of very serious changes are already locked in uh, to the planet's physical systems. These are consequences we're going to have to live with over the coming decades, even if we were to take strong action now. But they're also dealing with the fact that we have control over our future as well. We can change, uh, There's we, we can alter the difference between um, a really, really bad outcome and a, and a less bad outcome. So they're dealing with these two things at the same time. And uh, I was listening to a podcast about uh it's called Generation Green New Deal. And they were talking about going to parties and talking about climate change and being extremely uh, emotionally fraught and, you know, really just um, buried under these emotions and, and not being invited back to those parties. 
And now as a community, as a group, they actually have parties that are filled with people who all feel the same thing about climate change. They can express themselves freely. Uh, And what they're finding as a consequence of that is that they are attracting a coalition that is not dependent on politics and identity. You know, they're attracting young Republicans, they're attracting young Democrats, they're attracting young people who don't vote. Um, And it's because they're talking about this in a very human sense um, and a very emotionally confronting and open sense. That is not something that we're seeing a huge amount of around the world in such an organized and serious way. Um, And I think that a country like Australia could really benefit, um, particularly given the fact that after the bushfire crisis in Australia, uh, it was like, what was it, a week before another crisis hit? Um, And there was just no time for healing and um, communities, uh, coming together to talk about what had happened in that bushfire crisis. Um, So I think that when it comes to the politicization issue, I think that the answers uh, may not be immediately intuitive, but I think that community movements, uh, activism and dealing with climate grief actually all play a really major role in turning this issue into something that we know how to tackle emotionally, that we know how to cope with. Um, I think that's going to play a really big part in uh, diffusing the political side of this. Now, we are drawing towards the end of our discussion today, but I do just want to return back to the point that Beck made about interest groups. I mean, we saw in the mining industry's response to the proposed mining tax under Kevin Rudd that policy change can be politically fraught with difficulty. Ketan, maybe uh, I'll put this to you. I mean, is there anything that policymakers can do to better navigate those sorts of interest groups to ensure that we're making policy that's based on evidence, not not the uh, not the loudest voice in the room? Yeah, this is a really this comes up a lot in in many different political arenas. You know, not just Australia. In that, what you'll see is someone who tacitly supports the project of climate action, even philosophically understands the need for rapid climate action will avoid a policy uh, that is aligned with what the science suggests is the best way to protect human life uh, on the grounds that it opens them up to an attack. Uh, So they'll say something along the lines of uh, we're not creating a policy this way because, you know, it'll lead to an attack, which means we won't get voted in and we won't be able to do the policy anyway. Uh, And um, I think that's actually a really interesting and significant way of thinking because it it sort of feeds into itself. Uh, It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to some degree. Um, And really what we've seen around the world is that the successful examples of this are where people kind of just punch through it. (laughs) And they sort of go, well, look, we're going to get attacked. If we do a half measure, we're going to get attacked if we go all the way. So you may as well go all the way. And again, um, just to bring this up as an example, because I think it's really significant in America, the Green New Deal concept, uh, which sort of has its origin in climate activism, in youth climate activism in America, uh, is a very targeted policy that looks to connect to communities, you know, um, minorities, people who've been disadvantaged, people in precarious employment situations, 
And it looks to build a coalition with them and get them on board, which means when the inevitable attacks come, they're sort of diffused a little bit because all of a sudden you have this massive coalition of people who are on board and they're saying, well, if you're attacking the Green New Deal, you're attacking my job security and my my vision for the future. Uh, And what we're starting to see is a real change in attitude, which is basically the probability or the intensity of the inevitable attack that comes, you just have to ignore it. You have to punch through it, you have to wear it, and you have to make your policy in such a way that builds a much broader coalition. So not just people who like climate action, who sort of feel good about it, but but everybody, even the people who don't care about climate action, have to understand that your idea or your climate action concept is beneficial to them. Um, and that really changes the game uh, and it diffuses the power of uh, vested interests. And I think that Australia is is yet to truly engage with this new concept. I think that um, in terms of very, speaking very generally about policy, there's still a little bit of the old thinking, which is that you can sort of present climate action as a moral imperative um, and that that will bring everybody on board. Um, that's a key part of it, but you sort of have to add on um, coalition building with with um, disenfranchised people and people in uh, various sort of situations who have been hard done by. That makes a really big difference to policy. Now, before I let you all go, um, I have one last question for each of you. On last week's episode of Policy Forum Pod, we asked our panel to put themselves in the shoes of Treasurer Josh Frydenberg and to suggest one policy priority they would want to fund. But today, I want you to all imagine that you are Angus Taylor, the Minister for Energy and Emissions Reduction. I'm getting some strange looks around the table. And uh, if you were Angus Taylor, what is the first policy that you would seek to put in place that could start to transform Australia's energy market and ensure the country is reducing emissions? Perhaps, Beck, I'll start with you. I would say we need some certainty in the coal mining regions about what the future holds. And so this is kind of taking a few steps away exactly from what you asked. But some of the work that I've been doing in the Hunter Valley, talking to people in the region about what they see as the future of the region and the type of constellation of industries that have a place in the future of the region. A really big challenge is uncertainty, and that's uncertainty about if and when coal is on the out. And that uncertainty is having really bad effects on people. It's day-to-day people, it's affecting their sense that they can plan for the future. It's also interacting with the ability for um, other industries to move into the region, for existing industries to expand, contract, make decisions. And it seems that it's just such a toxic issue because of the politics and because of the intentionally divisive nature of the political discourse in the past. And the people who are suffering are workers, people in the regions, and of course the rest of us that need to see some action on climate change. So putting some certainty, which might mean having difficult conversations around the future of coal in coal mining regions, I think is a really big important priority. 
Great, thanks. Mark, you are the Minister for Energy and Emissions Reduction. Congratulations on your new role. What's the uh, policy that you're going to put in place? I'd be thinking not just about a, an individual policy, you know, perhaps in relation to electricity system or that. I'd actually be putting in place a policy framework. And and this is about not uh, is about linkage. So it's actually about the framework actually stitches the climate policy to the energy policy, to the industry policy, to an agriculture and food security policy, to a water policy, to an innovation policy, an education policy, regional development policy, et cetera. And, and the conversation then actually does transform. It actually starts to do what Kitan just talked about, which is actually about coalitions of people who see benefit from actually joining in and participating in something much bigger. And if we do that, it removes the adversarial aspect of, of the policy process at the moment, which is policies being pitted against each other and actually starts to work towards the national good and also a global good uh, where Australia can actually be seen to be a climate leader instead of a climate laggard. Great. And Katan, the uh, final word to you. What's the uh, policy that you would put in place? Well, it's it's nice to be the Energy and Emissions Reductions Minister. Um, I think I would... Uh, <laughs> I, I want to echo both of those answers because they're fantastic. But uh, in addition to both of those things, I would convert the Wind Farm Commissioner's Office. Uh, I would expand it um, to include community engagement and ownership schemes. So uh, basically mandating an offer for community ownership uh, for every new energy project that's not just um, not just wind and solar, but batteries and transmission uh, as well. Uh, and I would also empower that agency to become a national resource for helping companies and communities uh, develop ownership options. And I think that would actually, you know, to tie into what Mark just said, um, it would really connect people a lot more closely with energy. Uh, it would make them participants in climate action and they would start to see some immediate benefits no matter what their pre-existing beliefs are. That's my thing. All that remains for me, me to say is thank all three of you. This has been a fantastic discussion about what is obviously a highly contested and highly politicised issue. But I think that we've heard today lots of really positive ideas about things that can happen at a personal level, at a grassroots level, and could happen in the policy space to try and tackle this. So many thanks, Beck. Many thanks, Mark. And thanks very much, Kitan. Thank you. Thanks, Martin. Well, that was a terrific discussion. It's one I got a lot from. But listeners, we want to hear what you thought of what we've talked about today. You can send us your questions, your comments, your suggestions via Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum. That's APPS Policy Forum. Or send us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. But Better yet, you could also join the Pod Squad. We're on Facebook under the name of Policy Forum Pod. Our group is home to our fantastic listeners, the Pod team, and even some of our panellists. So hurry up and get on board. We can't wait to welcome you there. If this discussion has sparked your interest in climate change policy, then you might be interested in taking the next step and doing a postgrad in the field. Crawford School offers the Master of Climate Change, and if you're keen to help secure a safer future as a specialist climate change professional, this degree is definitely the one for you. You can find out more about it at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. And if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Policy Forum Pod, and why would you want to miss out on that, don't forget to subscribe to us. We are on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your favourite shows from. 
We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. But until then, cheerio for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.